Hey guys, welcome to this week's show. We are unpacking the budget. We're gonna look at the tax cuts, the job initiatives, the infrastructure plans, and everything else around that. But most importantly, looking at how this needs to be implemented to make sure you, I, and our futures are secure with a game plan that we can all be proud of. Hope you enjoy the show. Look forward to seeing you. Hey guys, welcome to this week's Money and Investing show with me, your host, Andrew Baxter, and as always, my offsider, Mr. Mitchell Laurentiel. Thanks for having me, Mr. Baxter, and today, as sharp as you're looking, we're gonna cover last week's budget. Dropping straight into it now, big, hot topic of the week, and very important to cover off. Indeed it is, it's this annual event that seems to come out and everyone hanging on tenterhooks, and then we get it unveiled and go, okay, what does it mean for me? Time for me to think about me. Well, I think it's so important, especially with what's going on. I mean, mm. there's people who never really cared about the budget that all of a sudden do because yep. of coronavirus and the kind of stimulus checks they're going to be receiving. And I think today we're going to cover off on the four biggest key takeaways from the budget, which is going to affect most Australians. Okay, well that's exciting. Four pillars to go off. I'm going to preface this with one thing, and someone that is an economist as I am, economics is one of those things that's based on assumptions. Okay, and that's something that's very, very important. You can't build everything. And always remember the Latin phrase, ceteris paribus, <laughs> assuming all things remain the same. And uh, the assumption on this, this budget that we've seen this year, and it's been touted as being the most important budget of our lifetime. So it's had a big billing, this it's one. It's a big call. And it's based on the assumption, of course, that there's going to be a vaccine for coronavirus next year. Big when, assumption. When next year, do they say is there going to be a vaccine next year? Do we need a vaccine next year? Is Corona the big deal that everyone's made it of and the hole that it's ripped into the economy? All subjects which are well off bounds for this particular <laughs> rant. So let's dive into the budget. All right, well, let's start off with probably the most important one, and that is, in fact, jobs, which mm. we're going to spend $4 billion on. Mm. What's your take? Look, anything that can be done to create jobs, I think, has to be a, a, a great thing. And, and, and looking at the tonality and the overall tenor of what was covered in last night, or the budget last week, is... All the right stuff. It was a good budget. There are tax cuts. There are spending in the right area. There's all sorts of really, really good things in there. Anything that can be done to promote jobs and some of the subset categories in there include uh, subsidies for companies that are looking to employ. Massively important, Mitch, because getting young people in the workforce is critically important because if it's not attended to, what you can end up having is something that's called structural unemployment. And that's where people have never really known a job and it's become a way of life not to have a job, which is an extremely dangerous psychology to have. I saw this firsthand in the UK, late 80s, early 90s, where you've had you know, a generation and then a subsequent generation uh, in families that have never worked. And that structural unemployment is incredibly difficult to break down. But what it does for people, it just breaks them as people because all of us need purpose, we need optimism, we need hope. And if you're unemployed and there's no prospect of that changing, that's a brutal thing, a brutal dream to have that this is your life for the next 20 years. So sure. anything to help young people get back in the workforce, brilliant legislation, let's hope it does what it's supposed to. And I think the government recognises that and that's why their goal is to create 450,000 new jobs. And the incentive mm. is with the employer, as we know, $200 a week mm. awarded to the employer. They're 16, between ages 16 and 30. Mm and then $100 a week if they're 30 or 35 in mm. that bracket there, mm. which is great, but they have to work 20 hours a week. And mm. what makes anyone think that the, the, these young people wanna work 20 hours a week when they can kick back for JobKeeper? Job well, that's exactly right. And getting that balance right um, is hugely important. You've gotta have incentives for employers to wanna to employ people, and you have to have incentives for people not to be unemployed. In other words, a big disincentive. And look, my views are probably slightly more right-wing um, than most, uh, but they are my views and I am entitled to them and hopefully they're going to provide some sort of 
educational context for this because it's not just a, a deep-seated political belief, it's understanding the economics of what's actually going on sure. and what needs to happen. So you've got to have a push and a pull, a pull from an employer's perspective to want to pull people into employment and a push from people that are unemployed to want to push away from the pain and struggle of not having enough income. And so to my mind, reducing things like job seeker to make it almost obligatory to have a job would be a great way to push people there, as you say, rather than having, uh, and this isn't everybody, there are people, of course, that are affected by this, that want to be in the workforce that can't be, but there are an awful lot of people really milking it right now, and that's something that needs to stop. Sure. So do you think that we will see a surge in people applying for new jobs, given mm, this? Probably not. And like anything, when it's legislated by government, the intention may well be good, but the actual practical application of it doesn't necessarily follow through. Sure. Look at the early access to super, for example, which we've covered previously, you know, the intention behind it was good, but what actually happened wasn't the desired consequence. Um, you know, you can't legislate for people's stupidity, I suppose. <laughs> um, so taking a step back from this, where I think the real breakdown is, and this is across the board with the budget, unfortunately, we've got a federal budget, which I say is a very, very good budget, but its ability to be implemented is totally at the mercy of the various state governments. And unfortunately, those state governments, you know, let's take the state of Victoria or Danistan, as it probably should now be called. <laughs> and I'm not joking here. I mean, they've been putting it to the ballot as to whether Victoria should change its name because Victoria is seen as discriminating against someone. They just call it Danistan. Crazy. Um, you've got a situation where you want to promote, you've got the highest level of unemployment in Australia at the moment. And you've got a situation where government on a federal level can offer assistance to companies to recruit. But on a state-based level, You've got one of the most punitive levels of payroll tax in Australia. 750000 is the cutoff for payroll tax in, in Victoria. So if your business has an annual payroll turnover of more than seven hundred fifty grand, you then have to pay a further percentage, I think it's 3.5%, uh, as a state levy. That's something that does not promote employment. It does the exact opposite to keep your payroll under seven fifty a year. So, so why have it? All you're doing is moving the, the, the money from one pocket to another, and it's moving from federal coffers into state coffers. And let's be honest, the states haven't exactly conducted themselves in a way that shows they should be given more money um, to, to do more things wrong. Um, yeah, and that's a huge thing. So payroll tax, if that were changed and made on a federal basis rather than a state basis that was consistent across all states and at a higher level, maybe four or five million dollars, uh, as opposed to its current relatively low level, that's going to do so much more for getting people into the job market because it becomes easier and more affordable for businesses to do that. Sure. Well, that makes total sense. And mm. I think it's a good point. And, you know, recognizing both sides of the coin there, mm. you know, will hopefully steward us more properly in the future. Maybe if we're going to talk about, say, jobs in terms of the employer's incentive, mm. let's segue that into our incentive being young people, mm. and that is the access now to education. Mm. As we know, there's plenty of upskill courses being, you know, that we, we can now uh, take advantage of, which mm. is, you know, teaching, IT, health, agriculture. What are mm. your thoughts in that area? Again, these are all brilliant initiatives, and, and they're very, very important. I think, you know, this whole period of time that we've had through Corona has given a lot of people the opportunity to reflect on our economy and a lot of the vulnerabilities that we have in it. And you know, we've certainly become, I hate to say it, a lazy nation, but we've been very dependent on China as our major training part, trading partner for commodities, okay? Iron ore and coal are two examples of that, but also overseas tourists and also overseas students. So we've built our economy almost around one country, which has left us in a very vulnerable space. So, you know, we've got colleges, TAFEs and universities that are not full at the moment. So that ability to pull Australians into them and get them upskilled has to be a good thing. We're putting our world-class facilities to good use and we're getting our younger people 
retrained and reskilled, I think what we need to have is a vision for what Australia needs to look like over the next 20, 30, 40 years so that we're pitching for that. And if we're serious about getting into the aerospace industry, for example, the tech sector, then having courses to reskill people to get them into that workspace is great, but there needs to be a follow through that that's their desired outcome. Otherwise, we're just putting people in courses for the sake of having them to do something. Sure. Second to that, agriculture, great one. I mean, Australia as a country, yeah, we're 25 million or so people. We produce enough food easily to feed 70, 80 million people here. So we are a net food producer. We're the salad bowl or the, the food basket of Asia, for want of a better description. And agriculture is an area that's really suffered. Obviously, we had the drought. We've got a large number of our clients uh, that are in farming, and our heart went out to them last year, not just with the drought, but with the bushfires and everything else that went alongside that and the hardship they've endured. But the biggest issue I'm hearing from our clients, and we've got clients that are you know, major commercial growers of, of veggies and fruits, is labor, and they can't simply get labor. Now, here we are in a country where we've got unemployment at 13%, but nobody wants to go and work in the bush or in agriculture because it seemed to be hard work. And again, I go back to that push and pull. If we're gonna encourage people to get into agriculture, there's gotta be incentives for businesses in there, which obviously there are with some of the allowances. But there needs to be a push toward that as well to get our rural economies firing up, our rural towns back to the splendor that they enjoyed 20, 30 years ago. And I guess engaging people in the, in, in the um, fulfillment of actually being a primary producer. We grow something, you can see the end product, it's healthy, it helps people, it's a good ecosystem to create. But there's a lot of resistance, I think, from younger people to want to go down that pathway because it's going to sound quite a harsh thing to say, but it seems being hard work. Sure. Rather be in an air-conditioned office playing around on social media than in the humid uh, field picking fruit. And I get that. Sure. But we're in a difficult situation right now. And we're talking about being in a depression. And we go back to the Great Depression in the 20s. You know, the guys would put a swag on their back and go walk 100 miles to get the next job and keep moving on to do that. But we're in a society that doesn't really have the, the mental fortitude or the backbone to want to do that. And no one's wanting a, a regression to life 100 years ago. But we're in a situation in our country where we've extended visas for overseas people to stay here. And we've got plenty of people here that are on four, five, seven and skills visas that have come in from overseas to work in our job market. And let's face it, they do a bloody good job. They work hard. They, and, and, and without uh, speaking, you know, targeting any particular group. Think about taking an Uber, for example, and, and the people that typically drive Ubers, they're here for a better opportunity, they work hard. Why would we have people from overseas coming in, working in those jobs, and concurrently be paying our people not to work? It makes no sense. Sure. So if you revoked or extracted some of that out and had upskilled people that are coming through a learning system to take over those jobs or recognize the fact that we're in tough times, you've got to work, there's no safety net, that to me would also be a very, very important thing, but agriculture, a huge one for Australia. Absolutely. Primary production is the backbone of what our country was built on. Sure, and those four or five sectors that they're typically promoting are probably mm. where the future lies here in Australia mm. for us, specifically in mm. IT as well. I think in, personally, and I know you probably will agree with me on this, is that if you're not working, you should be forced to go and upskill yourself and get some education under your belt. The greatest investment you can make is in yourself, and if the government's gonna pay that for you, I mean, no-brainer. It's a no-brainer, but you can't necessarily leave that to go, I'll get my choice, I can choose whether I wanna do that, but when it's on the taxpayer. Socialism is a great thing. Socialism is the best thing in the world until you run out of other people's money to spend. Okay? <laughs> and so, you know, oh no, I'll choose to not do anything. It's easier to sit on the couch and watch Netflix and, and, and just run my Instagram life versus getting out and doing something. So anything we can do to encourage people into that workforce. You know, but again, it requires a cohesive policy from both federal and state. You know, there's money that's going into trying to rekindle and build tourism. Very difficult to do when your biggest tourist state's got its borders locked. Um, you know, so it doesn't matter what money flows in, you've got that, that 
dichotomy of state policy which is going to prevent it from going through. Very, very hard. So we've got to get our internal politics sorted out and get on the same page together as a country because we are a nation. And if we want our young people and we want our workforce back in the marketplace, state-based restrictions, i.e. border closures, payroll tax, and other limitations like that are things that need to be stripped back and they need to be stripped back today. Absolutely, great recommendation. And changing pace now, let's chat about people who are already in jobs. Don't, get, don't get me on that. So no, I know, we could spend hours on that. Tax cuts, mm. 50 billion is what it's gonna mm. cost the government for that. And we know that 2022 slash 2023, uh, tax cuts is being brought forward to now effective immediately from July. What does that mean for the everyday everyday Australian? Look again, it's a huge positive. Um, yeah. Depending on the lenses you can look through, you're going to go it's fair or it's not fair. So if you're someone that's in the, the benefit world and, and you're relying on state for support, you look at tax cuts and you go, oh, the rich are getting richer and I'm getting left further behind. But they're also the people that are paying tax. They're not people that are draining the tax by being a cost. Exactly. You run it as a business, you're either a cost or you're an income. It's as sure. simple as that. Um, and if, if we take those tax cuts, they've been quite handy at all levels. You know, the thresholds moving up uh, have certainly made it good for middle income earners. And when we say middle income, what's that sort of sort of 80 to about 120 a year? Yeah, which now that that 32 and a half percent tax bracket is mm. now not doesn't start at 90 grand a year. It starts at 120. Mm. So it's a fair so, difference. So it's going to help a lot of people that are in that, that middle class. And again, you go, oh, the middle class. That's an area we've seen in the US get absolutely torched. And it's very, very important because that can often be the, the, the small business owners, the lifeblood uh, of our economy. Uh, and giving them a helping hand is, is very important. But it's also affected people because the lowest marginal rate has also moved up too. So whether you're a low income earner, middle income earner, you've done okay. If you're a higher income earner, pro rata, you'd probably come out a bit worse off sure. uh, compared to other people. But you're punished for being a high income earner. Heaven forbid you should be successful, right? Yeah, I think you should be aiming to pay as much tax as possible, right? That's what you always say? Yeah, it'd be nice if it was a regressive tax system, actually. <laughs> you know, you know, there's your lot. You've paid your lot. You know? And if you're a higher income earner, you know, the chances are your kids are at private school. Um, you own your own car, so you don't use state school. You don't use public transport. You probably have private health care. Now, you still pay for, you pay for all those privately, but you still pay for them through your tax as well. And there should be a bit of a knockout on there saying, look, you've probably paid enough tax. You don't use any of this stuff. You've done your bit. I think we're going to get a fair bit of controversy. No chance of that happening, but here we go. Anyway, we can always dream. But we can so, always dream. So, you know, it, it, it's going to run and it'll affect everybody in a positive way in terms of those tax cuts. Tax cuts are good. Why they've been put in and why they're so important? We've got to put money back in the consumer's pocket to get them spending to get this economy moving along. And we've seen good consumer spending. Harvey Norman, great example, sure. where retail sales have been really, really strong. Uh, and I guess the from an, if I put my economist hat on for a moment, typically when you provide tax cuts to the rich or the higher income earners, let's call them that, they don't necessarily go out and spend it because their natural propensity isn't to spend all they earn, they tend to save and invest. Sure. So you might see people in that group paying down their mortgage a little bit. Now, as an economist, if you're wanting to stimulate the economy, you don't really want that. You want people spending the dough buying stuff, the shiny stuff that keeps the wheels of commerce turning around, not paying down debt. But that's how that particular group typically, it's huge generalization, but typically see it. So a tax cut there is likely to see a debt reduction over here. Sure. Um, and, and whereas at the lower income levels, you tend to, you see people spend a tax cut straight away. They've got extra money. Maybe it's because they've been living week to week and they need that money to, you know, Put food on the table. Put food on the table, sense. literally. Uh, and some people are in that situation. Um, a lot of people are in that situation and that's gonna help them immediately. But that money will flow straight back into the Aussie economy. Less so from the higher earners, but at the same time, don't they deserve a tax cut too? Because if there's tax cuts on the table, everyone should benefit if they're a taxpayer. Well, I think you know, if you're a low to medium income earner and you're picking up an extra thousand, two thousand dollars in tax cuts, 
I mean, really, you're going to pay down your mortgage? Probably not. You're going to go and spend it on a, you know, brand new wheels or, or whatever it may be, which will hopefully stimulate the economy. That's that's the goal. For, that is for the that goal, budget, and, right? and it's good timing coming in before Christmas. This might be the thing that just softens the blow. So mm -hmm. they're going to pay for it. Make no mistake about it. You'll have to pay for it down the track. Um, but it's it's helping with the immediacy of the problem, which is to get people out spending and hopefully. Uh, and I actually saw my wife put something up on social media yesterday, which I thought was a terrific post. Um, and that is, you know, we're coming into Christmas, a lot of places are closed, you get a shop online, but rather than boost Amazon's profit, and we love Amazon as a business, how about you give some vouchers for supporting local business and sure. just keeping that grassroots idealistic, I know, it'd be great if people did that too, because that's what we need to see, that money spent here in Australia. Indeed, she's a smart woman, your wife, we know that. She married well. <laughs> now, <laughs> let's talk about the fourth and the final pillar of this budget, which I find to be particularly quite interesting, and that is the cost that we're gonna go and incur on infrastructure. Mm. So new roads, yeah. gas as we know, uh, mm. gas structure and whatnot. Mm. What are your thoughts? Look, I think any spending on infrastructure is good spending. Um, you know, if I go back again, look at economic history, in the 1930s, well before all of our time, you know, the Roosevelt government in the US introduced the interstate system and built that. So any of the I roads you see in America were built in the 1930s. And mm -hmm. it was uh, sort of make America great, not again, but make it great and get it out of the depression. Um, that sort of spending can be very, very helpful. Um, it's a great way of, of getting uh, what's called a multiplier effect. So if you spend some money, let's say you spend a billion dollars, which doesn't really go very far with infrastructure, but you spend a billion dollars, that employs people locally who earn a wage, that spend it at the local shop, which means the shopkeeper can put on more staff and those people they pay wages to then spend money somewhere else and, and you get this, this growth in sure. the money supply in the economy from it. That's effectively how it's supposed to work. Now obviously we're in a situation where you know, the construction sector has been under a fair bit of pressure, particularly in Sydney and Melbourne, where you know, we've had a lot of expansion for population growth, which arguably is not going to be happening now. Um, and, and so a lot of people in construction are going to be in a, in a tight squeeze for work. And so having that government-backed infrastructure type spending is good. As long as it's done in the right way, government infrastructure spending always runs over budget, over time. It needs to be brought into that private sector mindset on time and on budget, um, which is what really needs to happen there, otherwise we're creating a bigger monster down the track. But I certainly see you know, investment in Australia's infrastructure is key. Our transport is not that great. You know, if you think about it, um, I think something like 35% of our stuff gets shipped around by road, 45% by rail. Most stuff should be on rail, to be quite honest. Sure. Yeah, and then you're gonna have the resurrection of the, yeah, do we go to Sydney to Melbourne? Um, train line, the fast train line, I'd love to see that. I think it'd be a great thing to do. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Sydney to Melbourne in the air is actually the busiest air route in the world, believe mm -hmm. it or not, uh, between two notes. So that sort of spending I think would be good. It gets people that perhaps have been feeling it in the construction space a place to go in terms of work. Also though, I think from a construction perspective, wages have got a way ahead. If you look at the costs of having, I don't know, I've just, just built, and I develop, as you know, I've just built somewhere, and you look at the costs of trades, you know, you, you know, a decent trade's on about 160 to 180 a year, and you compare that to what a doctor, a dentist, a lawyer, um, you know, pulls down with the level of professional training there, you know, maybe there is a bit of an imbalance and, 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 and that reshaping of the labor market, bringing rates back down to a more commercial level, again, might be something that's good that comes out of this. But certainly infrastructure, I think, is, is critical. Better road network, certainly more uh, public transport in our major cities to reduce congestion, helps the environment, uh, makes it easier for people to get around, reduces all sorts of problems. That's, that's all good stuff, but it's gotta be managed in the right way. The challenge, Mitch, is that that's 10, 20, 30 years before you're gonna see an outcome from sure. that. Uh, and there's a level of immediacy that's there now. So if we're gonna do something, we need to be nimble. And again, if there's infrastructure spending, if it's federal spending, 
Fed should have the control over it and not rely on state government to interfere and mess around with what's going on. It's got to be pushed out and it's got to be done quickly. Absolutely. So that's infrastructure. The gas stuff, you know, if we look at the uh, exp expansion into using natural gas, you know, we're one of, the, one of the world's largest natural gas exporters. We like to export it cheap and then buy it back more expensively <laughs> for whatever reason. I don't know who signed off on that contract, but they should be shot. Um, you know, building natural gas, which is a, a healthier uh, form of power for the environment, you know, as, as a hydrocarbon, it's significantly better than burning coal, and we've had that reliance on coal for too long. Yeah, and I'm not a greenie by any stretch of the imagination, but burning coal for electricity is criminal. We shouldn't be doing it for that. Sure, you need it to make steel, that's one thing, but not for electricity. So certainly cleaner uh, energy is a good thing. I'd like to see us push further into things like solar and wind power as well for that matter. Sure. But that gas project, uh, particularly one in the Hunter Valley, I think is uh, is good. Very controversial, building a gas plant in the middle of uh, you know, the, one of our biggest coal fields. Uh, and we've got a lot of clients that are down there employed in there. And, and, and there's piles of coal down there at the moment, you know, that's still being shipped off to China, but there's piles and stockpiles of the stuff down there. So, yeah, that sort of stuff's gonna change. So infrastructure spending, what I'd really like to see if we're gonna do that also, would be um, some form of irrigation plan. Uh, if we can desalinate water using solar or clean energy on the coast, and pump it inland into our water systems to help our agricultural stuff. That would be a good long-term fix for, for some of the problems there. That wasn't on the cards, sure. but infrastructure spending in general, great thing. Yeah, we hope for less traffic, more jobs and cleaner energy, right? Mm. Sounds great. Look, I think we, you know, that overall focus of the budget is jobs. Mm. You know, get people educated, they can get yep. a job, keep people in a job and pay less tax yep. and then give employers to an incentive to employ these, mm. th these workers. It's, it's, it's a massive thing right now. And as we come to the end of the broadcast, AB, I just want to get your final take on the budget, where you see us heading long-term, mm -hmm. say within the next five and then 20 years, if we can do both. I think it's an interesting time. There's always that knee-jerk reaction. We've had time to digest it, I suppose. But we need uh, to establish a more organized structure uh, here in our country in terms of long-term planning, not a four or five year political cycle, but long-term plans. And if you look at countries like Singapore, and yes, Singapore's a dictatorship, um, but people that live there typically quite like it. The tax is low, there's no crime, everyone's got a job, there's education, there's healthcare, there's public transport, there's somewhere to live. Great place, right? Great place. So maybe a dictatorship in some respects, no. That's <laughs> uh, so it, we, we've got to focus longer than a four or five year plan. Sure. Uh, and the issue we've got with the depression that we're apparently in, and we've got to be careful we don't talk ourselves into this, you know? Are we in a recession? Doesn't feel like it. Doesn't feel like it. Technical recession, Technical right? Technical recession, right? So, you know, we need a very, very cohesive set of goals and there's got to be an immediacy to what goes on where it's not, we're going to do this and it's a glacial progress towards it. It's got to be stuff that happens now, but it's got to be the right things because, again, if we look back at some of the legislation and, and, and issues that were pushed in place by the government and done in good faith and done on the fly with very limited information and, and, and no real stats to go off because we're in a new situation, some of those policies, their intentions were great, but the execution and the outcome weren't what was expected. And we've got to be very, very minded that the policies and the budget itself are very good. You'd be a fool to argue that having more jobs, better infrastructure, more education, and tax cuts are bad things. They're all great things. Sure. But they've got to be run in the right way too. So you don't want infrastructure spending that's going out of control and on stuff that's never going to be used. It's got to be on stuff that's going to add value to our economy. Mm -hmm. um, so you know there needs to be that cohesion over a 20-year goal and then bring it down to those chunks of five years. The biggest impasse to this, as I see, and I've mentioned it already, is the issue of state government. And personally speaking, I'd abolish state government because it achieves nothing. Local government on the ground, federal government running the country, good model works in the UK, and it's probably the way that it should be happening uh, here too. You've got an unnecessary layer of legislation which has been able to derail federal policy 
Um, and unfortunately, in the case where it's been derailed, you could probably argue without being too cynical that that's been done given the fact that we've got a Queensland election in a couple of weeks' time, almost certainly for political gain at the expense of millions of jobs, hundreds of lives, and the optimistic outlook that we all had to enjoy up until February of this year. Get the borders open, get people back in the job force, get the tax rates incentivized by getting rid of state tax. Um, think of all that GST money that could go to the federals, uh, Federal Reserve and Federal Government as opposed to going into state government coffers and getting that plumbed into building industrial parks for working in technology, for putting in uh, rural towns to get our people working in agriculture and being proud to work on the land that have got a product to show for it, and get our house in order in terms of our migration. Do we need migration to grow? Maybe we do. But is it the expense of Australians being unemployed so you can have people here on a 457 visa? I don't know that that's that smart. So getting that cohesive roadmap that's in play for five and 20 years and then getting state government out of the way so things can actually be implemented and executed without the impasse that we see in so many forms of uh, development. We've got, an, we've got an airport here on the Gold Coast. It's right on the New South Queensland border. No one, neither state want to own it. There's no investment in the thing and it should be a great airport and it's a shed. And that's a real shame because it could be that's an example of getting that out of the way. What does that then mean for our economy? We can start to get back into not survival mode, but stabilization mode and ultimately then growth mode. It's not going to happen overnight, but those implements, uh, implementation of those tax cuts and getting that money in the economy in the right way, getting people in the workforce in the right way is going to stabilize where we're at. We have maybe a year of being stable, then you're probably going to start to see some green shoots of growth. If we don't get stabilized in the next year, it'll be five years before you see any growth. I'm telling you that now based on what I've seen through the recession in the UK and being in this space for an awful long time. And it doesn't have to be that way. So one's just got to grab it by the scruff of the neck and execute this to the optimal, absolute optimum. And if we do that, we'll be out of this quicker than we will be if we don't get those things sorted out. It's a great budget, but let's hope they're not just words that are spoken in Parliament and they're actually followed through with decisive implemented action plans on the ground to get our people back in work with dignity and with a future that they can look forward to. Great recommendations. And I don't think I want to say anything after that, AB. That's a really good way to cap this off. So thanks very much for your insight. There's plenty to unpack in there. Let's hope our viewers enjoyed that. Absolute pleasure, Mitch. Well, there you have it, guys. Plenty of controversy there. Leave us a rating and a review, and we'll look forward to seeing you in the next week's show.